Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would make us humble to receive it, that we would be like little children receiving teaching from their parents. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have uh, commanded us how to live. You have commanded us to pursue godliness. And Father, you've empowered us to do, through, do so through your spirit and the giving of your spirit. Father, we pray that in hearing this word, in hearing your word preached, that we would be doers of your word. To the praise and glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Remember that this letter, this letter written to Timothy, is being written by the uh, Apostle Paul to uh, Pastor Timothy, is what I think we should call him. So, Timothy and Paul had been together in Ephesus. They had been uh, ministering in the church in Ephesus together, and Timothy is asked then by Paul to remain on at Ephesus so that he may instruct certain men to do what? To not teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So that's early on in the letter. Paul is telling Timothy, do that. And um, also Paul writes in chapter 4, He tells Timothy another reason why he's writing. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So he's saying, look, I'm I'm writing these things to you so that the people will know how to conduct themselves in church, in the house of God. 
We can take these two statements by the Apostle Paul and boil them down to their essence. Bring order to the church in Ephesus. Bring some order. They're struggling. They have these problems. Bring order in Ephesus. Um, <clears throat> the Apostle leaves Timothy uh, with this task and, task and gives him instructions as how exactly he's to do that throughout the letter. Right? We've looked over this. Up, I mean, we've gone through five chapters, and we've seen Paul bringing that order. Um, he's talked about how people should relate to their governing authorities. He's talked about how uh, men should pray. He's talked about how women should dress. He's talked about how men and women are to relate to one another in authority. Um, what qualifications that men should have who would serve that church in office in those two offices of elder and deacon. He's, he's, he's talked about particular doctrinal problems that are going on in the church, like these, men who forbid marriage and, ab, and advocate abstaining from certain foods, um, how Timothy as a minister is to preach and pursue godliness himself. He says you've got to be an example. You've got to be an example to this messed up church, Timothy. Um, he, he's, uh, he's talked about what position the widows will have in the church. And he's also talked about how to discipline unruly elders. He even tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach and his frequent ailments. Not just for his stomach, but he says for those frequent ailments. Um, take medicine so that you continue can continue this work. Then last week, <clears throat> we... We looked at Paul's directions to slaves and masters. Um, all through the sermon on, in, <clears throat> all through my sermons on this letter, we've seen how indeed all scripture is profitable for us, for our training in righteousness. In God's infinite wisdom, his word is eternally true and it is always applicable to us, to our lives, no matter what era we live in. It is as applicable now as it was to that first generation that heard it, the actual church that received this letter. Now, in chapters six, in chapter six, three through ten, the topic turns to those particular people Timothy will have to do battle with in the church. That's what he turns to at the end of this letter. He's going to have to do battle with some in the church. In a nutshell, we could say that the problems will come from those who are more concerned to, to promote their own ideas and doctrines than they are concerned to pursue godliness as defined by the Word of God. Right? There will be those that want to promote their own ideas, and they're divorced from the Word of God. Look at the passage. The ungodly are described as those, uh, first, those who advocate a different doctrine. In other words, they reject what Jesus has given to us. They reject the word of God. They're also described as those who are conceited and understand nothing. Um, they're unteachable, conceited, arrogant. Uh, third, they're called those who have a morbid interest in controversial questions. Right? They miss the main thing to get caught up in the things that really don't matter at all. Uh, fourth, they are those who believe godliness is a means of gain, of earthly gain, right? That it's going to pay off somehow to be godly. They pursue God 
not in order to benefit their soul. They pursue God in order to benefit their own flesh. And then fifth, they're those who want to get rich. They simply want to get rich. They are worldlings, and they pursue money as if it's their salvation. I think I could boil all of that down to this, and this is a category of person you see float in and out of churches. These ungodly people are those who think they have everything figured out and have realized they can use religion to get rich. It's simply that. They have everything figured out. They can use religion to make money. These are the words the Apostle Paul would use today of our celebrity Christian culture. He would be scandalized by it. His zeal would outpace that of Jesus when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple. How many men are there in our televised and online broadcasted world who teach and teach and teach and teach and argue and wrangle over words and have long bios and who have been this and that fellow of this and that college and who have made tons of money promoting their ministries? Tons of money. Um, Check out Famous Ministries 990s online. That's what nonprofits have to do. They have to disclose what they use their money for. Check out Famous Ministries 990s and how much money is made, how much salaries there are, and who must fly first class if he's going to go to a conference. And many of those who have made tons of money promoting their ministries later have been revealed to be committing adultery, molesting children, and if not sexual sin, just plain playing the hypocrite. Teaching one thing and only doing so for money, but not out of any kind of personal conviction. And what reveals these kind of men is that when the winds of social change blow through a country, they find some new revelation, you know, from the Word of God that allows them to blow in the same direction. Rather than being a steward of the mysteries of God and standing prophetically against the sins of a culture, they tickle ears and gain followers and then fill their pockets with those followers' money. They are those Jesus condemned when he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. The tragedy of such such ministries, of such men, is they mislead so many. They mislead so many. Droves of dear souls are attracted to their ministries for the same reason those leaders are in ministry. Love of money. Denial of the word of God. So when I hear that someone attends church at Perry Noble's church or Stephen Furtick's church in Charlotte, I think of passages such as this. Perry Noble resigned from office and went to treatment for alcohol bondage, which was a good move, which was a good move for him. But what is scandalous is that he's now started his second chance church, he calls it. Second chance church. Sort of an appeal for the world to forgive him, isn't it? Noble was the man who taught that the Ten Commandments were not commands, but were promises. 
This is the man who essentially mocks Bible-believing Christians in every one of his sermons. He advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words. And if you try to teach him differently, he'll send his henchmen to drag your name through the mud. He has no place starting a church at this point. And those who come under his influence will be inoculated to the gospel. That is what is sad about this. Right? He's destroying souls for the sake of his own ego. But here's the Apostle Paul telling us about that reality. And we should not be surprised. But what, what of our own Reformed celebrities? What of our own Reformed celebrities? Just stop and think about how much money passes hands among Reformed celebrity ministries. You know, does, does Al Mohler get 10000 for a conference he speaks at? Probably. Every conference he speaks at, they give him ten grand. Do you think the temptation to love money claims some of them? Do you, do you think that arrogance claims some of them? Do you think that some have succumbed to this because they haven't been, had anyone around them applying this passage to them? Right? If, if you're not willing at any moment to, if, if, if a man is not willing at any moment to sabotage his earthly kingdom for Christ's kingdom and, and you know, not use words as prudence dictates or, you know, we have to make sure we seat him at this or that table or, you know, building bridges requires nuance. If, if a man is not willing to sabotage his earthly kingdom for the kingdom of Christ at any moment, that man has entered into temptation. And his only hope is to repent. I mean, all pastors face this temptation. All Christian leaders face this temptation. Every Lord's Day, every pastor determines whether he will preach God's word and mention Perry Noble or whether he will risk offending the richest people in his church. Right? That's, that's every time a pastor starts a, to work on a sermon. He wonders whether what he says is going to affect the tithes and offerings that pay his salary. Or whether he will cherry pick scripture, nuance a passage to death, or, or simply lie to keep the rich happy. It's very tempting at times to want to protect your congregation from the Word of God, but brothers and sisters, you don't want that. You don't want that. Praise God. You don't want that. And if I do it, you should fire me. You should fire me and have the presbytery excommunicate me and not worry about whether my family is going to be provided for. You should love God's church more than you love me. Pastors must preach the word in season and out of season. Uh, someone, some, someone recently in my hearing was lamenting the, our lack of statesmen in government, men who truly desire to do what is right for the good of the state and are not influenced by personal gain and ego and legacy. The same is true of the church today. right? We need shepherds willing to preach the word in season and out of season, 
without fear of man and without fear, I mean, and with a healthy dose of the fear of God, those, we need men whose consciences are held captive. Like the Apostle Paul wrote at the beginning of this letter to Timothy, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of our teaching. That should be the goal of every pastor. Are there any like that today? Are we all narcissists? Right? Are we all builders of our own earthly kingdoms? Are we all so self-centered that we refuse to be fools for Christ? It appears so. Where is the man that fears God today? Where is the man that, that fears God? I mean, we'll sabotage our faith because we're embarrassed to talk about it with a stranger in the checkout line at Lidl. Where is the man who fears God today? Notice that Paul, the Apostle Paul says that the men who advocate doctrines different from those that Jesus taught are conceited and understand nothing. Understand nothing. The word for conceited here is literally to wrap up in smoke, um, to becloud, right? To distort, like you really can't make them out because they've clouded themselves with, with uh, other things. And what an image. I think we could say that the one who teaches other doctrine is blowing smoke, right? They, they are trying to mislead. Um, they surround themselves with clouds so as to obscure themselves and, and Paul says he understands nothing, nothing. Uh, notice how the Apostle Paul doesn't hold back. He, he uses that comprehensive. He understands nothing. And us moderns get upset with him for, for overstating his case, right? Well, there are some things he probably understands, right? But Paul says that man understands nothing. Nothing as it really is. Their minds are darkened. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in his, his letter to the Ephesians. It is remarkably similar to what he says in 1 Timothy. In Ephesians 4.17 he says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Right, that's pretty, pretty uh, categorical, isn't it? Those who reject the word of God, those who reject the word of God are darkened in their understanding. They are hard of heart. They are callous. And therefore have given themselves over not to godliness but to sensuality. There's no understanding outside of regeneration. There's no understanding outside of regeneration and the illumination that the Holy Spirit gives as which... There's no understanding of the Word of God without the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> In his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, 
He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. And then, so he uses those three examples, and then look, look where he turns to. <clears throat> he says to Timothy, consider what I say. You know, mull it over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Right? They understand nothing. God's going to give you understanding in everything. Timothy is to set his mind on the things the Apostle Paul has just written him. And then the Lord will give him understanding in everything. Do you search the word for understanding? Is that the kind of life you lead? Do you search the word of God for understanding? When you are despondent, when you are depressed, do you search the word to understand why? When you are joyful, do you search the word to understand why? When you suffer great losses, do you go to, the, to his word to gain perspective? When you desire to be a better father, do you do a, a study on fatherhood? Do you wrestle with the scriptures directly in order to have knowledge and wisdom that comes from above? If not, if you don't live your life that way, you are on the verge of rejecting what is written for whatever you hear everywhere else. All those other voices that speak to you from your television and your radio and your friends. If you don't go to the word of God to understand, you are on the verge of rejecting what is written for whatever you have learned in your life from other sources. If you follow that pattern, you are rejecting what is written for um, or in, in place, you're putting what you feel. <coughs> in place, you're putting... You're putting what your unbelieving uncle has said to you. That should not be. Now, what goes hand in hand with an arrogant disinterest for Jesus and his word is a contrasting interest. Actually, what Paul says here is a morbid interest. The word here is nauseo, which, from which we get our word nauseous. Right, a nauseating interest, a morbid interest, um, would a nauseating interest would be more appropriate. The type of person is nauseatingly interested in controversial questions and disputes about words. So when we leave behind the clear teaching of Jesus, the clear teaching of Scripture, we get involved in and become as experts in everything that is disputable and unclear. I mean, think about that. Leaving behind what is clear to become experts in what is always unclear. These are the people who, joins fringe, who join fringe political groups, right, and claim to be experts of the law and the Constitution. They join secret societies. They... They get doctorates and write for theological journals, right? Their source of truth is Drudge and Facebook. Their televisions are their oracles. And the more obscure the dispute, the more they want to get involved and the angrier they get in disputing it. Um, Michael has brought my attention to the fact that there are actually dedicated flat earthers. There are people who believe the earth is flat. <clears throat> they reject the truth of God's word, and, and <clears throat> you know, that's the sort of thing you start disputing. 
right? You, you begin to think that that's important. Um, how much ink has been spilled by our media who has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words? How much ink has been spelled, spilled by our media concerning the Russian thing and the fact that President Trump supposedly used an expletive when describing Haiti? I mean, think of how much ink has been spilled over that one word. Our media, which many of us have more devotion to than God, is the perfect example of this. Notice that the Apostle Paul says something arises out of being fixated on controversial questions and wrangling about words. What arises from it? Envy, <clears throat> strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So let me summarize that this way. There is nothing in this world other than God's word that can lead to unity among people. There's nothing other than the word of God and his truth that can lead to unity among people. Everything else is a, an endless string of controversy and arguing over words. Every newspaper, every meeting of the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate, every court case, every communication is merely a dispute, a wrangling over words made that way by God at Babel. Outside of the unifying power of the word of the creator God, there is only disputes, right? Think of these, those words, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. Those are perfect words to describe the behavior of our governing authorities and political discourse today. So many envy others' positions and power and have godless ambition merely to make a name for themselves. There's constant fighting, no willingness to give someone else the benefit of the doubt. Many cast out words that are not meant to heal, but are meant to wound. Um, conspiracy theories abound, and many are suspicious about everything, you know, particularly Monsanto. In constant friction, there is so little willingness to cover sin with love. We run at a fevered pitch of self-justifying behavior. And for the Christian, and for those who submit themselves to God and to his word, this need not be, because he that person is living his life directed by the word of God, not by every bit of information that assails him, every bit of information that's, that's floating around on the internet. The word of God grounds us and allows us to break out of the godless cycles around us. Those who reject the word of God are foundationless. So you might expect that it would lead to if you don't have a foundation, you might expect that it would lead to envy and strife and abusive language and constant friction. Now, Christian, is this true of you? Is this true of you? Or is your life a string of going from envying to strife to abusive language to, to constant friction? Are you grounded in God's word? Is that where you find your, your peace? Your, your ability to, um, 
to rest in God? Or are you tossed about by every wind of, of teaching? God has written to you. God has written to you. Should you not be devoted to his letter to you? I've been reading the letters that my um, grandfather wrote to my grandmother during World War II. He was in the Army Corps of Engineers and went to both the European and the Pacific theaters. Um, he was second wave at Normandy, thankfully, and um, went to Okinawa. He wrote of his, his activities in basic training and all the fears about the war. And I can imagine that my grandmother, when she received these letters, read them four, five, six times. Um, and, and here I am, 75 years later, digitizing these letters that she kept in beautiful shape. Um, she wants them buried with her when she dies. And she's now 97 years old. Those letters are precious to her, right? But how much more should the letters written by God Almighty be to us? God, the one who created us, who knit us together in our mother's womb, how much more precious should these these words be to us? How can we not be pouring over them, seeking to understand God's will for our lives, seeking to understand God himself, who he is, how he loves, what, what, um, what he's done? And so if you want to have understanding, go to the word. If you want to have a depraved mind devoid of the truth, neglect God's word. Neglect the word of God. The apostle goes on now from there to speak of contentment, and we'll pick up there next week, Lord willing.